Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming this evening. I'd like to begin by introducing myself. My name is uh, Jo Beal. I'm a professor of development studies in the Development Studies Institute here at the LSE and acting director of the Price Estates Program. I would like to welcome you um, this evening to this event about a very important topic that's dear to um, our hearts in the Crisis States Research Center, which is the uh, part of the LSE that's hosting this event. Um, we are acting <coughs> in, as a panel discussion. Uh, there are four speakers who I'll introduce to you in a moment. The running order um, will be for the speakers to each speak for around 10 minutes and for us then to open, uh, open up to the floor for discussion and questions. Um, we generally try um, to record these events and we, um, we hope to have a podcast of the event for those people who would like to have been here and can't. Uh, sometimes technical difficulties make this um, problematic but we are doing everything we can to, to podcast. Um, but the events will be recorded. Um, our first speaker tonight um, is Claire Short, who's well known to many of you as former Secretary for International Development uh, in the UK government and um, uh, an, an MP who continues to hold development issues dear to her heart. On the 15th of September 2005, Claire Short wrote in the independent newspaper that no amount of debt relief, aid, and improved trade access will bring development to the people of Eastern Congo until order is restored and the institutions of a modern state are put in place. She uh, continues to address issues of governance and the politics of development across the world and tonight will update her position on this important topic. Our second speaker is General Abasanjo, former president of Nigeria and currently UN Special Envoy to the Democratic Republic of Congo. He has served as ruler of Nigeria from 1976 to 79 and won two terms as president from 1999 to 2007. He is a member of the African Progress Panel which aims to focus world leaders' attention on achieving their commitments in Africa. He was appointed UN Special Envoy to the DRC in November 2008 and he has since held two rounds of facilitation talks with President Kabila and rebel leader Nkunda. Speaking to Newsweek in November, he called for more monarch troops and for the leader of Congo and the Great Lakes region and the international community to put their heads together. He was going to talk to his position second. Third, um, our third speaker is on my right, James Putzel, who's Professor of Development Studies here at the LSE, and um, since October 2000 has been Director of the Crisis States Research Center. As the Center's Director, he authored the Crisis States Research Center press release, which uh, came out in November 2008 that sparked the debate uh, that this panel discussion is about. He urges reconsider reconsideration of the ways in which the international community are engaging with the crisis. Our final speaker um, on my extreme right is Professor David Leonard, who's pro uh, Professorial Fellow in Governance at the Institute of Development Studies, IDS, at the University of Sussex, 
and who is formerly Dean of International and Area Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He's worked in Africa since 1963 in over 20 countries and has recently done an evaluation of election support in the DRC. So I'd like you to join me in welcoming our speakers tonight um, uh, before I hand over to them to speak. Thank you very much. For so our first speaker is Claire Shaw. Thank you. My knowledge of this situation obviously goes back to my time in government from 1998 to 2003. Um, and I, although I've followed it since, I've had no insider knowledge. And I will hand over, of course, to President Obasanjo, who is dealing with the current situation. But I have to say my own conclusion from the rather sorry tale of the international community's engagement in the Eastern DRC is that we have terrifying incompetence in our international institutions and in our capacity to help countries recover from conflict and to start to build institutional strength when, they're, when we're dealing in um, very weak countries with very weak institutions. As you all know, the, um, the origins of the link between Rwanda and um, the Eastern DRC in the current phase of the conflict came after the genocide of 1994 and then the leaders of the genocide going into the Eastern Congo and taking large numbers of their people with them. Um, and then the international donor community who failed in any way to assist Rwanda prevent the genocide to everybody's shame and to the deep shame of the United Nations given the warnings that were sent repeatedly to New York by General Dallaire suddenly turned up and started providing help and assistance to the refugees who'd been displaced from Rwanda and in that way massively strengthened the leadership and authority of those who'd organised the genocide because they were the ones who distributed food and had all the power that flows from that when you're dealing with people who are in a desperate situation. And as I came into the picture, and the UK's decision to engage with Rwanda um, was, was purely that the devastation in that country about which we knew little was so desperate, the international community had let Rwanda down so badly, and Rwanda was so scarred and distrustful of the countries that had previously had close links with it, France and Belgium and so on, that Britain became a useful country because we didn't have history there and therefore could step forward and try to be a partner and try and help Rwanda rebuild. Um, and of course, I mean, I hope it's obvious to everybody, there was no interest for Britain, self-interest, in getting in involved with Rwanda. Um, it was that if you looked at the situation when I first visited, there were still lots of feeding programs all over the country. There were um, lots of NGOs operating throughout the country. The government had very few resources. The World Bank and the IMF were predicting no economic growth. Therefore, no donors were willing to get engaged. And if Rwanda didn't have a chance to grow its economy, then the prospects of more and more cycles of crisis and suffering was, was very likely. Um, and indeed, the distrust was so great that when we met with uh, the Rwandans in the first place, we kind of had to persuade them to let us to become engaged and then try to persuade the World Bank and the IMF to develop a more ambitious program and we committed to long-term 
commitment of aid has got some other countries to do the same so that we could be a bit more ambitious about helping Rwanda to um, recover. But I became deeply involved, partly because there was such prejudice, I think, against Rwanda and such an unwillingness to get engaged that for a time I was one of the few um, politicians from Europe that had any kind of close relationship with the Rwandans. And from the very beginning they were deeply focused on and constantly asking for action to remove the genocide heirs from Eastern Congo. And you know the story, I mean I won't go through the phases of the history, but that has been an endless focus and when um, young President Kabila took over from his father after the um, invasions into uh, Congo by Rwanda, Uganda and then all the other countries um, and after South Africa did so well in broker brokering a peace deal. Throughout that period Rwanda was asking over and over again for disarmament of the forces of the genocide to send them home for re-education and reinsertion in, into the army and so on, which they did with some people who returned voluntarily. And at one stage, we, the UK, put um, a, a retired intelligence uh, person into Kinshasa to try and keep an eye on what was going on. And there's no doubt that arms were being provided to those forces of the genocide in the Eastern Congo and exacerbating the situation because of all the sectarianism that was so ripe. Um, throughout the situation. So the consequence of all this is one of the, the military attaches, um, a UK military attaché said to me, the fighting in the Eastern Congo became, because of course there were lots of local militias as well as the forces of the genocide and all sorts of others in different phases and Congo came later, um, but a kind of chaotic Hobbesian lack of order and authority and therefore both fighting and terrible loss of life and suffering because of lack of good food, lack of, lack of sanitation, lack of um, the provision of things that people need, so the loss of five million lives, most of them obviously through ill health uh, and diarrhea and so on rather than violence, but terrible high incidents of sexual attack, is that groups would come to any village, fire in the air, this is the military attaches account, assess which group was stronger and the weak one would run away and the stronger one would then pillage and steal and, and take from the local people. And it was kind of gangsterism uh, that was preying on people throughout the Eastern Congo and spreading this sense of disorder and so on. And it's gone on and there's been endless initiatives and you're all presumably familiar with them. My own view in terms of the current situation is that um, it's been a very, very important breakthrough that creates a real possibility for progress which puts big responsibility on your soldiers, uh, your sh shoulders, President Abbasanjo, that um, Congo and Rwanda agreed to move into, in, into the eastern Congo and try and deal with the forces of the genocide and move them out. I understand 5,000 people, not all of them fighters, quite a lot of them, them civilians have re returned to Rwanda. And the, although the fighters are still there, their bases are weaker, they've been dispersed, they're in a weaker situation. Um, and it seems to me this now creates an opportunity for Monarch um, and the UN operation to, five minutes left, to really reassess its, um, its whole performance, which has been weak partly because the military capacity of UN peacekeeping oper operations is so weak. 
Um, and I think if you look more broadly across the, we've got more UN pe peacekeepers in the world than we've ever had before. And the way the UN works is that the, the big, the G7 powers pay the overwhelming bulk of the costs of such operations, but hardly put a soldier in. And so they tend to be weak forces with weak logistics and less equipment than they might have to have the kind of authority um, that would make them more successful in imposing order, disarming those that need to be disarmed, and therefore creating the opportunity to bring some development and security to, to the people of the region. I think it's, it's worth comparing briefly the experience of the UK in Sierra Leone. We had there a badly thought out peace process a UN peacekeeping operation that was weak, and you'll remember that uh, lots of the soldiers were taken hostage. The UK went in on behalf of the European Union to evacuate the Europeans with no intention of staying, and then realized how embarrassing and dreadful it would be if the UK evacuated the Europeans and then Freetown fell again and the conflict went on and there was lots of human suffering, and therefore remained um, and some UK soldiers were taken hostage and therefore UK special forces went in to get them out and attacked and killed some of the West Side boys. And there was a change in the whole atmosphere in Sierra Leone and the realization by some of the rebels that there were some strong forces available who were going to take action. And it enabled the UN to then go on and make progress. So the case I want to make is there's been a lack of concern. The, pe the peacekeeping oper operation wasn't strong enough and wasn't willing to use force as force was needed, but the, the fundamental fault is amongst the Security Council members who aren't willing to supply the kind of forces with the strength and logistics to really implement the mandate. Um, I think on top of that, and this will be my last point because I'm sure I'm running out of time, there's commentators and NGOs have constantly wanted to find forces to denounce, to question Rwanda's motives, to always claim that the whole motive of the country was to take resources from Eastern Congo. And there's no question that the whole history of, the tragic history of Congo from King Leopold to President Mobutu and so on has been the dreadful exploitation of the resources of that mineral-rich country. But I think instead of trying to look for heroes and villains and vilify the motives of um, countries like Rwanda, it's the duty of the international community to deal with the underlying source of the problem in order to bring the chance for stability and order and development. And lots of the NGO commentary has been this finding of villains, denouncing of motive, rather than focusing on the need for the successful disarming of the genocidal forces, the bringing of order and development to the people of Eastern Congo. And I think and hope and wish you every luck and you can bring the whole of your experience to bear in this difficult situation. I think we're in a new situation with a real possibility for progress. I'm sure it won't be easy, but I think the cooperation between Kabila and Kagame and the, the two armed forces and the progress that's been made, and I presume the possibility of them repeating them, that and the arrest of Nkunda creates a real new possibility and it is our <coughs> duty now to make progress, to arrest more of the genocide, to hold everyone to their responsibilities and to bring some peace and order and the chance for development to the people of Eastern Congo.
bringing about comprehensive peace once and for all in Democratic Republic of Congo to deal with all root causes. And I, I, I underline comprehensive once and for all and root causes. Now, it's an impossible task. <coughs> but then we decided to have a go at it. The first thing we did, President Kappa was in fact in Geneva and after contacting him, I decided to go around all the leaders of the region uh, from Congo, Brazzaville to Angola to Burundi. I, I went uh, almost to all the uh, leaders. Then I went to Laurent Nkunda himself. Of course, I started my journey from President Kabila. All of them wanted to achieve progress in the Congo. All of them were anxious. Of course, they all have different emphasis on what needs to be done. Is it uh, foreign troops in the, on the uh, uh, Congolese soil? Or is it illegal mining? Or is it easy transfer of uh, small weapons? But all these were touched by all of them, or is it the security at the border? Then, the first task was to really stem the tide of the, uh, uh, of the humanitarian crisis. And we appealed to Laurent Nkunda, who, of course, accepted and he did accept. And when he accepted, things died down. So I would say that two most significant uh, achievements have been made since November 7th. One is the stemming of the tide of humanitarian crisis. We haven't reversed it, but we have stemmed the tide. The second as uh, uh, Honorable Claire Schott said, is the issue of the rapprochement that has now developed between President Kagame and President Kapila. And that should not be underestimated. Uh, On November 7, President Kagame and President Kapila will not even talk to themselves, let alone shake hands. They wouldn't. But then they started talking to themselves. Not only did they start talking to themselves, they started sending uh, emissaries and then sending their uh, officials to meet in each other's uh, country. Then they jointly planned uh, an operation for their mutual benefit, an operation that will deal with the greatest fear of President Kabila in the Eastern uh, DRC, which is Nkunda and CNDP as a political military organization. 
the fear of President Kagame to deal with the uh, genocide, um, the FBLR. They agreed and they implemented the joint operation. No matter what we may want to say, the fact that they jointly carried out the, that operation is a good thing by itself. You can say, well, what did they achieve and all that. Uh, that's a different thing. Now, I want to then say, from that position, there are three things that we now have to do and which we are attempting to do. One, the fallout from that joint operation. Two, the follow-up on that joint operation. And three, the underlying issues, the underlying issues that in fact led to the uh, reason for such an operation to have to be undertaken in the first instance. Now, I will just give a, a few examples of this. The fallout. There is the issue of reintegration of the uh, soldiers of uh, CNDP. And as, as at Sunday when I was pres with President Kabila, about 5,000, between four and 5,000 soldiers have been integrated. But they are not being paid. They are not being fed. They are not being garrisoned. And there is danger that once they are frustrated, those soldiers will take their gun and go out. And what they will do is what Honorable Claire Short said. And they will go pill, uh, pillaging. They will go doing all sorts of things. I, I just give that. That is fallout that we have to deal with. The international community has to help. I give that as an example. There is the follow-up. Now, how do we create sufficient confidence in the IDPs? to feel secure and uh, safe to return home. Now, when they return home, which homes are they returning to? Some of their homes have been looted, destroyed, demolished. And when they return home, where are they going to get pots and pans? Simple thing like that to cook. Now, if they are farmers and they return home, where are they going to get cutlasses and hoes and seeds? to plant in the next rainy season, which is probably a um, couple of months away. Now, that, that is the follow-up. And the truth is this. Although Democratic Republic of Congo is not a failed state, but it is a state with very weak and non-existent institutions of state. Very weak and non-existent institutions of state. Now, to, I give that example. There are other examples of follow-up. Um, there are the example of uh, FDLR. FDLR has been disturbed. FDLR has not even been weakened, let alone being destroyed. It's still an issue. Now, let me then talk a little bit about the underlying issues. One is FDLR that I've just mentioned. What will happen? Now, the, unless we have this institution built, like the army, the police, and all that, and there can be an effective joint operation with MONO, the Congolese army with MONO, and the newly integrated 
uh, army with uh, CNDP can move on, then uh, FDLR will remain a menace. There is the issue of when these people return IDPs and uh, um, uh, refugees, when they return, somebody has taken over their farming land. How is that resolved? That is a problem. It's part of underlining issues. There are now the issues of what they call Rwanda phones. These are Tusis and Hutus who are being given attention against non-Rwanda phones. That's other tribes in North Kivu and in South Kivu who, who are now saying, look, even in the army, we are getting disproportionate number of the Rwanda phones compared with the other tribes. Now, these are the issues that as at the moment, agreements are going on, or negotiations rather, negotiations are going on between the government and CNDP. There's a new leadership of CNDP, which is keen to move away from being a political military organization to a purely political organization, and which want to renounce uh, violence and really go out and do things as a political uh, um, uh, group. Now that must be encouraged and we as uh, mediators, we have a te technical team right now in uh, Goma working with the two sides and it will not be only with government and CNDP it will be with government and CNDP government and other armed groups in North Kivu and government and other armed groups in South Kivu. Um, that is the only way we can deal with root uh, stem and branches. Now, with all this, what is the role of international community? Now, the role of international community is to make available sufficient resources. If the international community and the, the international community must be appreciated for this, can provide over half a billion dollars two and a half years ago to run the most expensive election in Africa so that we can establish legitimacy of government. We need not less than that amount over a period of three, maybe four years to start proper establishment of institutions that are not non-existent and to strengthen institutions that are very weak. If we are able to do that successfully, then DRC may be the miracle of our time. If we fail to do that, DRC may be the disaster waiting to happen. Thank you, and um, I now turn to Professor Patson. Thank you, Joel, and thank you very much, in General Okasanjo. Um, I'm speaking in my capacity as Director of the Crisis States Research Center, but also uh, on the basis of research undertaken in Rwanda and the DRC uh, by myself, 
by Gabby Hesselbein from our center, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, and by Nick Garrett, also associated with our center. Really, I, I'll try to keep my comments brief. I think one of the most important things to have happened in the last few years in the Great Lakes was the agreement that was struck between Kinshasa and, and Kigali, between President Kagame and um, President Kabila, as, uh, uh, as the general said. This, this agreement to conduct joint operations against the FDLR, or the former genocidaire from, from Rwanda. Now, there are three reasons why this was so important. First, the FDLR remains the primary source of instability and conflict um, in the eastern Congo, uh, and in the Kivu provinces in particular. It's really been their raison d'etre for groups like the CNDP that General Ogosondo was talking about under General Nkunda. It's the reason why they've been able to exist. So there's also been very hard evidence in previous years of collaboration, direct collaboration between the forces, the official armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the FDLR. Um, so th this agreement for joint action between the two the armed forces of the two governments against the FDLR is extremely crucial. Um, to root out the problem of FDLR requires concerted military action, um, forceful military action, but also a pos positive prospects for the repatriation of um, particularly the Hutu civilians um, associated with the FDLR um, uh, political influence in the Eastern Congo. And as uh, Claire mentioned, that repatriation was accelerated during the, during the joint operation. Unfortunately, since the Rwandans withdrew, it slowed down quite considerably. Um, it's unfortunate to note that what forced this to happen, this joint agreement, and this final, finally a redirection of international attention to the FDLR, was the offensive that caused the humanitarian crisis, the offensive of the CNDP, objectively, is what forced the situation. Um, and we need to remember that. Uh, the second reason why this joint operation and agreement was so important is, as the general said again, the crucial rapprochement between DRC and Rwanda. This is pivotal to the future stability of the region and future peace. And this has angered and excited great opposition in Kinshasa um, and um, particularly in the Congolese, among Congolese parliamentarians, um, but it's essential for peace. Probably because it's, un, it's inconceivable to see the Eastern Congo being peaceful over the long time if there's not some sort of joint responsibility for security between the DRC and, 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 and Rwanda, particularly given the ineffectiveness of the FARDC, or the Official Armed Forces of the DRC, and I'll come back to that in a moment. There has to be a credible threat um, against the spoilers of peace, and that credible threat needs to emerge from uh, security cooperation between the two countries. The third reason why the agreement was so important is that it's only with the establishment of basic security that we can begin to see the possibilities for economic development in the Kivus. It's a very rich area minerally, and also in terms of agricultural potential. Um, and 
if we're to see any transformation from an economy that's now dominated overwhelmingly by illicit activities in the mineral extractive sector, by artisanal mining where people are just eking out an existence, and bare subsistence agricultural and husbandry activity, one needs to see security and peace for that to be achieved. To achieve the agricultural, the dairy, the husbandry potential of the Kivus, one needs peace, as one needs peace to achieve the possibilities for energy extraction and electricity creation from Lake Kivu. These are big possibilities, but it requires that kind of security regime over the region. And again, the establishment of a credible threat that can only come, actually, unfortunately, in the eyes of some of the human rights activists, but only come from viable states. I have three big worries for the future, for the medium term, and even the short term. The first worry is that the principal problem in the Kivus and in the DRC more generally has been the failure of the Kinshasa government to preside over the creation of an integrated armed forces of the state, the FARDC. An armed forces that functions, that operates according to a unified chain of command, and that's accountable in some way for its actions. While all the groups active, armed groups active in the eastern Congo have committed human rights violations and appalling, as we've heard from report after report, incidents of sexual violence, which is a method of warfare in the eastern Congo, the FARDC, the Congolese government's own forces, have been among the worst perpetrators of this. And this is a great worry. Everything hinges on some progress in this regard. The Secretary General's report to the Security Council on the activities of Monarch, the latest report at the end of November, testified to the fact that only 12 of the 20 battalions of the FARDC have gotten new special training. It testified to the fact also that the FARDC itself is responsible for much of the pillaging and sexual violence, and we know it's an ineffective fighting force. It collapsed every time it faced the CNDP on its own. And the Secretary General said, and I quote, there's no coherent security sector reform plans among the government of the DRC at that moment. So this is an extremely important issue on which the future very much hinges, and I don't think the international human rights lobby that's been watching the eastern Congo fully appreciates this. What is being done to build the FARDC today? Why could it happen today when it couldn't happen yesterday? What are the prospects of CNDP or the integrated Mai Mai militias, the other paramilitary organizations who have been joining or integrating into the FARDC, sticking there? What's different now from what existed over the past few years? It would be good if we could answer that. Secondly, my second big worry is that the normal template of one person, one vote, or formal democracy, is not going to be able to solve the problem of the eastern Congo, the Kivus, precisely because the minority populations who have been subject to different kinds of persecution there can never win a voice in the elections. The former, you know, the largely Tutsi Rwanda-phone RCD 
Goma that participated in the elections that took place in Congo was demographically defeated before it began. So it wasn't a real contestant. What does that mean? It means that the political settlement that has to reign there must involve some sort of power sharing, and what I would like to call also some sort of devolution under a strong center. And it also requires this joint military um, or security regime between the DRC and Rwanda so that people feel secure in their communities. Um, and so there's a big problem in Congolese politics today, I think, and comes out of our research, there's an idiom of, of, of nationalism that's promoted in Congo that sees, defines the nation in counterposition to another, defines the nation of Congo, uh, the DRC by demonizing Rwanda. Now, hopefully, the rapprochement can begin to undermine this, but that political discourse is very strong uh, in the DRC. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the other problem with the politics and the political settlement, um, not only in the Eastern uh, Congo, but across the DRC, is that we have yet to see viable political parties emerging in the country that function according to program, that are accountable to constituents, that are organized on a horizontal basis across ethnicities. We haven't seen that. Not even President Kabila has built his own organization into such a party to date. And so um, there, the operations like the local elections do in June um, this year don't, uh, don't bode very well for this. Finally, um, I think the third worry is that we have yet to see a serious development plan for the Eastern Congo, for the Kivus, or for the DRC more generally. Um, and it has to be a plan that's not entirely dependent on mineral extraction, particularly because we've seen with the, existing, the, the current financial, international financial crisis that investment, lending, et cetera, to the exploration for mineral extraction to that part of the world has greatly declined. Thousands of people have been laid off in different parts of the DRC. Our own research showed that unemployed people in Katanga, uh, have migrated to the Kivus and put them up, sells up for sale to, to, to work in or to, to fight in, in, in armed groups. A development plan has to look at agriculture, especially, uh, and animal husbandry and that rural infrastructure. This has to figure prominently as well as the launching of some processing activities in the DRC in relationship to minerals and, and agriculture, particularly as sources for employment in what are growing, expanding urban areas in the DRC. So in conclusion, there needs to be um, an accent and an attention by the international community put on the reconstruction of a responsible security sector in the DRC where there could be a credible threat to make a political settlement possible. Uh, there needs to be inventive approaches to the political settlement that go beyond formal democratic voting to get elite buy-in across the different contending parties. And there needs to be an economic development plan beyond the development of the mineral sector that will not only provide uh, new opportunities to, to, to provide livelihoods for people, but will also allow uh, elites to have an incentive to work with the state rather than to work outside of it and to finance their activities through, through um, um, and, and support their fund their economic activities through armed force. Thank you. Thank you, James, and I now call on David Leonard.
Well, in coming last, there's lots of things that I don't need to say. So, <laughs> um, let, me, uh, let me begin by actually addressing an issue raised by James Putzel, which had to do with the elections in the DRC. Because uh, it was an important uh, op-ed uh, in the Guardian uh, uh, earlier in the year by, James, uh, by Paul Collier, uh, criticizing the elections in the DRC, essentially contending that they had caused uh, the outbreak of violence from Nkunda and the, in, in the uh, eastern part of the country. And I, I want to suggest that really quite the opposite is the case, and that in fact elections are a part of the way out of uh, Kenya uh, out of the, the DRC's present problems. Um, and um, the, 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 the crucial point here is it's not that elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been fully free and fair. Uh, they certainly have not, and there are, as is frequently the case with elections in new places, uh, after 41, in the case of the Congo, this was the first multi-party election in 41 years. Years uh, frequently, these things don't go well or perfectly in the first rounds. However, the elections did succeed in winnowing out many of those who claim were claimants for political power, so that many of the uh, guerrilla groups, mil uh, groups that had existed before, even one that had been able to claim a vice presidency in the period moving up to the elections, was eliminated through the electoral process, uh, and winnowing down, substantial winnowing down of parties uh, in that period, so that it be begins to have a more defined group within which you're bargaining and working on the future of the country. But much, much more important is I don't think that the very negotiations that everybody here has been positive about, which occurred between uh, the, the uh, Kabila and uh, Kagame in Rwanda, would have been possible without the elections. I think that clearly the international community was quite instrumental in bringing the two together and provided a considerable amount of arm twisting in order to get both parties to the table. And this required that the international community had some sense of legitimacy of its actions. And the international community needed the elections in order to be able to push forward with the very sorts of peacekeeping activities that we're now seeing. I also think that they remain important for the future also because the most important political, uh, civilian political opposition to the Mobutu regime was of course that of Etienne Tshishikedi's Union pour la démocratie et le progrès social in Congo, the UDPS, the UDPS, uh, which has not yet been brought into the political process. And the only way it's going to be brought in is if we extend the electoral process, if we now hold a round of local government elections, which is what the UDP, UDPS has always said needed to be the first step into democratization for uh, the Congo. And that is an extremely important uh, step forward. Now, uh, I, I think that, that James Putzel is right to be critical. I mean, he's right to say that Congolese parties are not terribly programmatic in character uh, and not uh, hugely successful 
in uh, working across regions, but frankly, there are not very many parties anywhere else in Africa that meet those criteria e either. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, I, I just I think that that's putting on Congo a very very high standard, uh, which is very is likely to evolve later, not earlier in the process. In this regard, I'd like to actually give thanks to Claire Short for her period as minister because, in fact, the UK played an ex probably played the most important part among all the bilateral uh, donors in the Congo elections and was able to leverage that position into having really directing the way in which the European community also spent its funds in the elections. And this is remarkable because, of course, not only did the UK not have any particular interests in Rwanda, it also doesn't have any particular interests in the Congo. And the very, this very fact made the UK a much more of an honest broker and made it much, much more influential. And this is an example of an area in which the UK's uh, commitment in this particular case uh, to a recreation of an adequate governance process in a situation where it didn't have interests was actually critical, I think, to much of the forward movement of the whole process. I would like to raise a I think an important issue for us to debate here today, and one that troubles me deeply, has to do with the ineffectiveness of the UN forces in the Congo, with the ineffectiveness of money. And this is not a small force. I mean, this is over 17,000 troops. Uh, I think, actually, that it costs about a billion dollars a year. So that the funds that one is talking about for other activities of half a billion, as pro proposed by General Obasanjo, are, are in fact overwhelmed by what's being spent on money. And yet, when disorder began again in the Eastern Congo, Mono just simply stood aside, protected itself. It didn't protect the people of the Eastern Congo, that it was sent there to protect. It's playing a role, and we've seen this before with UN uh, peacekeeping missions, really much more of, I think in the literature we feel to refer to it as peacekeeping as opposed to peacemaking. It's playing the role of observers and observing that we'll report everybody who's done something wrong and reporting publicly that who's done something wrong, we hope will shame them into doing something right. But that's not enough in the Eastern Congo. And the record of the, of, of, of the UN in, in these operations has meant that it is no longer, sadly, a credible deterrent. Uh, and we have very clear evidence throughout the developing world and lots of clear evidence from Africa that the presence of a relatively small, fit fighting force which is a credible deterrent, has a profound impact on the occurrence of civil, uh, of, of, of military, of violence within the country. 
Claire Short spoke about the role that the UK played in Sierra Leone. Um, and again, that, that's simply an illustration of what the UN forces have not done. What is the problem here? Claire Short said that the problem was that countries that are contributing to UN peacekeeping missions are sending their weakest and least well-equipped forces. That would at least, to me, if that were the problem, I would at least expect to see them fighting and losing. <laughs> um, we don't see them fighting. Therefore, I wonder, is the problem the mandate? As what that, that is coming out of the Security Council, that was certainly the problem with the UN forces in Rwanda during the genocide, which is that they did not have the proper mandate from the Security Council. Where is the problem coming from? It seems to me it is a critical problem, therefore not only for the Congo, but actually for the world generally, that we probe deeply into what is it that has kept UN peacekeeping missions from being credible deterrence and try to address that problem and make them credible deterrence again so that the money and the troops that one is committing to this operation in places like the Eastern Congo uh, actually have some chance of meaning something in the rebuilding of the country. How to do that, frankly, I don't know. But there are lots of other experts at the table and perhaps in the audience who will enlighten us on that subject. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to our four speakers. Um, I'm now going to open the floor to questions and comments. Um, can I remind those of you who, who want to uh, make an intervention to wait until the roving mics come to you? to introduce yourself with your name and to say uh, your affiliation if you have one. And please to keep uh, your comments reasonably brief. So um, I now open the floor. Hi, um, my name is Manji. I'm an, a master student here at um, the LSE. Uh, my question is to Mr. Obasanjo. At the end of your, um, at the conclusion of your um, presentation, you did talk about making resources available um, to facilitate, uh, to making resources available to um, alleviate the problems in the DRC. But you also made reference to the fact that DRC is lacking institutions. So how would you, how would you provide resources with that um, facilitation through the, um, through the creation of institutions? Like how would you basically dis distribute that? if you don't have institutions to actually help out with that? Interesting question, thank you. I'm going to take three questions um, and then ask for uh, the speakers to respond. Um, okay, yes. um, the person just behind the la lady who spoke before, in the middle, and then the gentleman. My name is Nana, and I'm a master's student here at LSE as well. Uh, my question again is to uh, General Obasanjo. Um, in your speech, you called for uh, quite a significant amount of money from the international community. Could I ask how much African Union itself has made available or is planning to make available in support of uh, DRC, and if they have it, 
why has the African Union themselves not taken a strong leadership before calling for international community to help? Thank you. And then the gentleman here. Sorry, in the middle. I'm Carl Miller of the Arms Reduction Coalition. Uh, following informative films about the situation in the DRC, films such as Lumo, uh, The Great Silence, Rape in the Congo, and a campaign by such groups as WILF, uh, on, July, on the 19th of June last year, the UN Security Council unanimously adopted Resolution 1820 on Women, Peace, and Security. The Security Council noted that women and girls are particularly targeted by the use of sexual violence involved as a tactic of war to humiliate, dominate, instill fear in, disperse and forcibly relocate civilian members of the community uh, or ethnic group. The resolution demanded the immediate and complete cessation by all parties to armed to arm conflict of all acts of sexual violence against civilians. The resolution stresses the need for the exclusion of sexual violent crimes from amnesty provisions in the context of conflict resolution and processes, and emphasizes the importance of ending the impunity for such acts. I know. Can you bring it to a question? Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. Sorry, will the panel please update us on the use of rape as a weapon of war in the DRC, especially regarding the cessation by all parties? the ending of impunity, the exclusion of sexual violence from amnesty provisions, and the exercise of the international community's uh, responsibility to protect the defenseless women and children. Thank you. And um, I'll take this gentleman here, and then we'll uh, return to the panel, and then go for another round. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Oladio Rombelo. Um, I'm from the University of Cambridge. Um, I know most of the questions have been um, directed to President Obasanjo. Um, I appreciate if you, you know, um, comment on this, and um, some of the other speakers on the panel can also, um, you know, comment on this. Um, I've always suspected that, you know, perhaps the DRCs. Um, you know, maybe one of a few uh, examples of conflict around the world where when parties to conflict actually sit down to talk, um, they do not, you know, broach some of the most important um, issues that, you know, that have perpetrated the conflict and, you know, has now ensured it's entering, you know, it's 11 or 12th year now. Um, the economic undercurrent and the conflict, um, General Obasanjo specifically, um, you know, how does that come out when you talk to the Rwandans, presumably the Congolese side, um, you know, talk about this unspoken, um, you know, economic agenda on the part of the Rwandans? You know, what, what's your what, what's your feeling on this? Um, you know, presumably you've also had people within the Congo who allege that Rwandans have a wider sort of strategic design on Eastern Congo. They envision this as a sort of economic buffer for the Rwandan state. I wonder how this come out in some of your negotiate, um, 
some of your discussion with the key actors in the region. Thank you. Thank you. A uh, really good round of questions to kick us off. I'll come back to um, some of the other hands. And now I'll turn, I think, to you first for some responses and then open it to the others. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, I think uh, you, you rightly direct a lot of your questions to me because um, uh, probably more than anybody else, I am right on the ground now in, 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 in the um, Great Lakes uh, uh, region. Let me deal with the case of uh, what I have seen on the ground about the weakness of UN forces in if the UN forces in the Congo are unable to perform as they should perform, I think a substantial part of the responsibility must be laid at the door of the UN Security Council. The UN forces are as capable and as able as they are mandated to be. Um, if they are not mandated to be capable to do what needs to be done, they will not. And they will do exactly what is happening now. The present mandate of UN troops in the Congo does not allow them to go out on their own and fight. It does not allow them. They can move in uh, accompanying or uh, along with um, Congolese troops, but you do not have a Congolese force that is credible, that you can even move along with. And that is the truth. So you have a situation where the UN look on and when they even try to move the Congolese troops disappear and then who are you moving with? I just say that because we have to be able to uh, situate that in the context that we have on the ground. Now if we have to make resources available and institutions have to be established or enhanced the weak institutions to whom should they be made available and how should the resources be distributed. Let me take the army that I have seen and that is an area where you will give me a little bit of um, uh, ability to talk. What we have in the Congo now is the, Belgian, uh, the Belgians are to train three, uh, two brigades. The South Africans are to train two brigades. I think Mono is supposed to train, I don't know how many brigades. Um, others are to train, huh? the French are to train, so now, you don't have an army that way. With all due respect, you don't have an army that way. Now, what is the doctrine of the Congolese army? 
What is the drill of the Congolese army? What is the basic uh, training of the Congolese army? You bring armies of war, different warlords. You bring them together. And then you say, now, take a brigade. You haven't put them in a melting pot. So we have a problem. We, we really have a basic problem. Now, who will undertake this? The Congolese army needs to go back to the basics where they will be basically trained. Soldiers, officers will be basically trained. Now, you have an army that is in the field fighting and what does he carry when he's going into the field? He carries his mat, carries his wife and children. <laughs> now this is true. Now this is true. I've seen them. And he carries no food, no money. He's supposed to live on the ground. So when you say that the Congolese uh, soldiers are great perpetrators of uh, all the things you are, the evils we are talking about, this is the reason. And this has gone back to the time of Mobutu, that the Congolese army must be an army that lives on the ground. Uh, from uh, from there of the people and you cannot have an effective army that way so when we, if that money will be made available you will have to deal with the army and I believe that we can have a good internationally made uh, uh, team to retrain uh, to retrain the Congolese army completely and it may be a three-year project. It may be a four-year project. I don't know. The same thing with the police. They don't have a, a, custom, a, a custom establishment. So you go across the, uh, across the border, and then you, uh, it's only if you have an army that will stop you and uh, start some money from you. Don't. A proper immigration. I do not know the, the army, for instance. They some of those who have trained their brigades and given them money. Say, look, they give this money and say, look, let's have a proper, a proper uh, system of pay. You have the pay office, you have the battalion, the brigade, and the pay is different. They say, no, just give us the money, and they take the money. Nobody is paid. Now. So that is one problem. Then the other problem, how much has Africa made available? And um, if they haven't made available uh, resources, why not? And um, if they have made available, uh, where are the resources? Africa has made available within the limit of Africa's resources. <laughs> Africa resources are very, very limited. And Claire said it right. Now, we, and we have said this in Africa. Now, we will provide the men to do the job, but give us the resources. And that's what has happened uh, in Sierra Leone. Uh, we thank the British for coming to the Sierra Leone. But the 
Nigerian soldiers were there before you came. <laughs> yeah. Now we went into difficulties because we haven't got the resources that will match your own resources. And when you came and you gave the resources back in, we were able to do it together. Now we went into Liberia where nobody will go there. And we did it. After we have done it, the UN came in. And we took the credit together. Now, <laughs> now we were the first to go to Darfur. We were the first, uh, we and, the, and Rwanda. We were the first, Rwanda followed almost immediately. And of course, what are the resources of Rwanda? What are the resources of Nigeria? Where you have to deal with 150 million people. Now, so we, 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 we do what uh, we have to do. Yeah. Uh, what, what? Now, the, the, the other point is the economy. The economy and the economic issue. It is very vital very important. The um, Congo will not make progress unless that issue of economic uh, or the economic issue is, is handled and handled well. First, within the Congo itself, issue of infrastructure and the economic issue. Let me say this. In road terms, Congo has about 10% of the road transportation that effective good road transportation that Nigeria has. And yet Congo is two and a half times the area of Nigeria and only one third the population of Nigeria. So you can see the problem of infrastructure. Just road. Now they have something they call economic community of the Great Lakes. It is important that this is activated and made to work for the Congo, for Rwanda, for Burundi, and for Uganda. It is the way that they should go. And we should encourage them to go that way. I think I will stop there. Thank you. <laughs> um, I <laughs> thank you for an excellent response. I want to give uh, other people a chance, but I also don't want to lose um, a point raised by one of our questioners on Resolution 1820 on women, peace, and security, and uh, rape as a weapon of war. I don't know if any of our panelists want to take that one. I would like to. In most vile conflicts, there's lots and lots of rape and sexual abuse. It happened in the Balkans. It happened a lot in Sierra Leone, but because the emphasis was on cutting arms and so on, there was, much, there was less public debate on the extent of sexual violence. When you get disorder and fighting, you get rape and sexual abuse. And it's violence being named more, it was named as a crime when the ICC was established and so on. That's progress to recognise how widespread it is when you get this kind of conflict. But if you can't create order, you're, it, it will not stop. It goes without pillaging, violent, living off the land, intimidating type of conflict. 
And so it's good that the Security Council set, uh, passes a resolution, but without the capacity to enforce its resolutions and bring order, um, it's a declaration rather than a delivery. And I just want to comment briefly on this question of the ineffective of UN, ineffectiveness of UN peacekeeping operations. The mandate was strengthened in the Congo, and they did do some fighting. Um, the mandate's part of the problem, and the conception that it's peacekeeping, and if you haven't got a peace to keep, you've got to use some force to enforce order, to give people the stability that enables humanitarian relief and so on to be delivered. But my own view is that the refusal of the, the permanent members of the Security Council in particular, the G7 and so on, to put significant forces into UN peacekeeping operations is the root problem. Because if they were there being ineffective, losing their lives sometimes and so on, the fuss would go back to the Security Council, there'd be a demand for a, a stronger mandate and so on. And when you look, we've got more peacekeepers than we've ever had, I think since the UN was established across the world. And when you look at the countries they come from, it's, it's a story of the poor countries provide the peacekeepers and the Security Council does the voting. And there's something profoundly unhealthy about that, that approach. And it means not enough priority is given to the effectiveness of the operations. And I think, I mean, I must say, hearing you all talk about the current situation, the lack of training for the Congolese Army, that was a major issue in my time. We put up big funds for DDR, um, and no progress has been made. And, and, you know, Belgium, France, it was, had to be francophone. Why has it not worked? Why has there been no progress? Um, and that's this bigger issue. I mean, Eastern Congo is a tragedy, but we've got an underlying issue of ineffective international institutions that are not capable of creating order. And I think you can create order um, with armed forces that mean it and that are willing to, if that state monopoly of violence or a force that can have enough capacity to use violence that this low-level pillaging type um, conflict is brought to an end because there's a mightier force that can stop it. And it's not addressed yet and it's going to be a real problem for you, I'm afraid, in the future when you don't have a Congolese <laughs> army that's capable of... Um, um, the other thing I want to say, for the guy from Cambridge University, there is lots of pillaging and small-scale mining and so on in Eastern Congo. I think it's an absolutely false claim that Rwanda wants to be there for that. There are lots of individuals doing it, but Rwanda's hope for itself. It's this Singapore of East Africa, high levels of education, not corrupt, a, a desirable place to locate. That's what it's really working on. And all this mess in the Congo absolutely damages. I'm not saying there aren't some Rwandans exploiting, but there's no large-scale investment in mining because of the chaos. So it's small-scale miners making a bit of money here and there. That's not a strategy of the Rwandan government. And I think that claim is endlessly used to play a blame game instead of us being effective about bringing order and bringing development to some of the people. And I'd just like to say to the two master students who started off, the international humanitarian system can deliver immediate relief to people who are hungry and small-scale uh, seeds and tools and so on, and to keep people going. I mean, there's a real problem in my view that most of the humanitarians who move in come out of Europe, and we need more African leadership for that. And there is an organization, Africa Humanitarian Action, that's trying to develop the ability of the continent, then the learning of what caused the crisis would stay in the continent. and You'd be building the capacity of Africa to deal with its own crisis resolution. I think that's an important underlying question. But if you can't create order, 
you want economic development. You can keep people alive, you can bring in feeding, you can, you know, this reasoned upsurge is one more incident in five million people have died in Eastern Congo. Most of them from hunger and diarrhea and so on. So we're back to this incapacity of the international system that is exemplified so badly in Congo. And I don't know, we've got a moment of hope, but if, if, if we don't get more serious, and if the Security Council doesn't get more serious about making monarch work and training a, a really serious Congolese army, we're going to go around this circle again and again, I fear. Thank you, Claire. I'm, I'm going to ask um, our other two speakers to hold back uh, their responses, but to feel free to respond to this uh, round of questions when I give them first opportunity next time. But we're running chronically out of time, and I've got lots of hands. Uh, first of all, this gentleman here. My name is uh, Laurent Mbango Binkitoko. I'm a representative for Rally for New Society. It's a political party from Congo. I'm Congolese. <coughs> Uh, first of all, I am very disappointed with the panel. That is true. Because uh, from the beginning to the end, they didn't mention to condemn Rwanda. Everything they are talking just is a weakness for Congo. And uh, today, because most students they are here, you must know Congo is a big country. There is a 450 tribes. And the day inside, there is no 20 tribes. Congolese, we accept every people. Even you go to UN to check, Congolese was the first country to receive many refugees in the world. UN give opportunity to say, okay, open the way for Tutsi, a Rwanda people for genocide to enter in Congo. And the same people, Rwanda, Tutsi, and the Utu, they are killing Congolese people. They, don't, they are not much mentioning it there. Can you bring your comment? Yes. Yeah. My comment, no, it's better for them to know. <laughs> uh, one is uh, President Abasanjo, former president. I can call you just your president. You are there envoy for UN. You know original for the war in Congo. What are you doing to finish that problem in Congo? Because there is a big problem that you can explain, but I can put a bit. It's about army for Rwanda they are coming to, to, to Kunda group to be involved and to say they are Congolese. What you, are you doing for, to, to prevent another genocide or another killing for that situation? Thank that you. is the first. No, the, you, I'm afraid I can only allow one question because we, okay. I've got very many hands. Even if another person? No, another person. No, Sorry. I, I was supposed to, to ask a... To okay, call, very, very quickly. Yes, please. About the election, because they are talking about election, uh, whatever, week, whatever, but it, it was the, the uh, all of big country in the world, is them, they accept that election, that Congolese, they didn't even accept it. That government is weak because it's like a remote control. 
when a TV is there, that the remote, there is a someone who is touching the remote. Is that the weakness? You must recognize that. And again, you are saying about uh, uh, because of uh, the uh, Congolese uh, Rwandese infra, uh, Rwanda, Rwanda phone uh, to be integrated, whatever. No, it's a democracy. Election is there. If you are, you, you are not Sorry, I can't, I can't let you get into another speech because we're really running out of time. So can okay, you um, give the mic to the person behind? And there's a lady there with her hand up. Thank you. My name is Marie-Lise. I'm here on behalf of the uh, WILF. Um, my question goes to Obasanjo again um, in reflection to um, the 1325 UN resolution about women participation in, uh, in peace uh, and conflict resolution processes. Um, it has been uh, kind of, it has been noted that when you are being nominated to lead, to be the UN envoy and you're choosing your team, apparently uh, women haven't given a chance to participate in your team. So I'm wondering what your team is doing about this issue in terms of portraying what UN has kind of manifested and especially to highlight the voices of Congolese women in, who are suffering and kind of being um, subjected to rape and other, other things that are affecting them. I believe that they should have a voice. Do you plan to do anything about this? Thank you, and thank you for keeping your uh, questions succinct. This gentleman here, did I see a hand over there? Uh, thank you. Uh, and please keep, uh, say who you are and keep it brief. Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Tembe Akandukai Tolba. I'm a student here at the NSCM to the Masters. Okay, uh, my question is to Professor James Patzer. I just want to, to understand from your perspective and the research you've conducted whether, I mean, my sense about the speeches is that there, there seems to be a gap about the involvement of the people civil society movements in particular as participants and not as victims in finding solutions. I mean, the, the, the emphasis is let's bring in the army, let's strengthen the institutions, and there's no debate about how you legitimately do so by involving the people on the ground as active participants in the, in the process. So I just want your comment on what you think about that. Thank you. Um, I've got very many hands, but I can only take one more, and I'm going to, I've ignored this side. So, um, the young lady on the end. Thank you. Um, my name's Early. I'm from the NGO Action Aid. Um, my question is to Claire Short. Um, you mentioned that um, the NGO commentary of finding villains or vilifying uh, different parties to the conflict isn't helpful. I was just wondering if you could expand upon what you view the role of the NGO community could or should be um, in terms of not only providing humanitarian relief, but in sort of pushing along with other actors within the international community um, for the comprehensive peace that uh, General Abbasanjo referred to. Right, thank you very much. I'm sorry I can't take any more. We're already running over time. Can I um, turn to uh, David if you'd like to respond? Uh, first comment about the, uh, I'd, I'd like to link two issues that uh, have come up frequently in the conversations, which is about uh, the exploitation of mineral wealth in the Congo 
and the uh, Congolese army. Because we've already commented on the fact that this is an army that is not paid. Uh, and therefore, it lives off the land, which means that it lives off the people. The reason it's not paid is partly a heritage of the Mobutu era. Uh, there is nothing new about an incompetent and predatory army uh, in the Congo. That goes back uh, definite, deeply into the Mobutu period. There was even a period when the chief of staff of the army under Mobutu was illiterate. I mean literally illiterate, not just a little bit illiterate. So uh, this was, this inst it's an institutionalized thing. But the link here is that I want to make that the resource base is that there is in fact no revenue being collected by the government of the Congo. It doesn't in all, the, in the run up to getting people in power and running the elections and so on, the government, all the people who became influential essentially gave away everything all the resources of all the mines and so on in order to get support, get the finance to run their election campaigns. So that the, what should be the tax base of a very rich country is in fact been completely privatized. And until those resources are recaptured for the state, the state won't have the money to pay salaries, and an army that doesn't get a salary is an exceedingly dangerous um, so I, I wanted to link uh, those two things. I would also like to acknowledge the concern here about uh, that you raised. Uh, one of the things that struck me forcefully in, in my time working in the Congo is how people don't, in fact, in the Congo talk about Hutu or Tutsi. They talk about Rwandans and about the Rwandan problem in the East. I've, Given that in the rest of the world, where we're much less sophisticated about these things, people are quite astute in talking about Hutu and Tutsi, I found it very striking that as far as the Congolese are concerned, it's both sides of this conflict, historical conflict, which are a problem. There, of course, were linkages, have been linkages from one side to the other that are complicated, but I do think and I think that it's been hinted at here in a couple of the things that have been said. The problem of Eastern Congo cannot be resolved without the participation of Rwanda. It has got to be negotiated between the two governments. And what we found encouraging is, after a long period of time in which nobody was talking to one another, at least people are talking to one another and some forward movement for joint action is being undertaken. Is there justice, equal justice on both sides of this? Probably not. But we're talking about a real politic situation in which getting those who have the power to change the situation to sit down and talk with one another about how they can change it in a way that's positive for both parties is actually a major step forward. Yeah, um, I'm not going to, I agree with a lot of what's been said by the rest of the panel in response to the questions. I think that many of the questions are linked and come back actually to this problem of the lack of the consolidation 
of a coherent and functioning armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo. But especially the armed forces, and I'm glad we had your perspective as a general, because um, when David raised the question about the UN, I think you rightly pointed to the fact, on the one hand, that, that Monarch must work with the FARDC, but the FARDC is dysfunctional. The FARDC has been collaborating with the FDLR. The FDRDC has interest, for instance, the 85th Brigade. It's just a collection of my mind, ethnically organized uh, militia that control considerate, considerate mind. Um, and so the Monarch forces have a Chapter 7 mandate. I mean, this is a mandate to, for, for extensive intervention, but they're hamstrung by having to work with the FARDC and by not having crack soldiers from European military forces, for instance. Claire is absolutely right to say African armies are being forced constantly to man all the UN missions in sub-Saharan Africa. And Pakistan. And, and yeah, yeah, and South Asia. Third, third world developing country armies that are much less well resourced. And so we don't have serious military intervention. The other point is that the most important providers of military assistance are the members of the Security Council on a bilateral basis. And this is, as you said, incoherent military assistance. How do you build an army with different brigades being trained under different doctrines, with different equipment, with different um, uh, modes of procedure? You don't build an army that way. If the international community could put half the pressure on the Kabila government that did for conducting elections to building an, a coherent armed forces, there could be a, the beginning of a change in the DRC. So I really do think that this question, and, and this is also what's necessary to protect economic activity and property rights, et cetera, for, for, for some sort of development to occur. Finally, civil society, there are green shoots. There is popular organizing going on on a small level. But you know, in a place where the state is not functioning, you don't guarantee the space for civil society. And unfortunately, I don't think that we can put a lot of hopes into grassroots, NGO, et cetera, organizing if, you, if there is not the creation of a legitimate security regime uh, in the territory. And I, and I think that becomes, a, an, there is a prioritization that has to be understood here. Civil society won't have a chance without that. Thank you. Um, we have uh, one minute each for you to <laughs> say some concluding words. Um, yeah, just the action of the young woman. In the age of spin, I mean, NGOs are into spin too, and headlines, and fundraising, and reputation. And it's easier to denounce and blame than to propose solutions and criticize the big powers. And that's what I ask. I know it's harder, but if it, you know, the sort of, oh, it's all because of minors, that's been on and on and on, or the human rights organizations sort of blame everyone, and there's no solution contained in that, I think it doesn't help and it's sort of my hands are clean and everyone else is not good enough. There's, there has been civil society activity, particularly around church groups, because there's so weak states institutions around church groups, you get a lot of the organisational capacity. But when you've got rape and violence and pillaging, civil society can't flourish. It's there and it comes back, and it's been used to kind of provide humanitarian relief. But then if, if violence comes, people have to run. And, you know, so they're a very important component, but they need order in order to, to flourish. And I'd say to Laurent, if you go to Congo, 
There is a love to hate Rwanda and Tutsis. Um, it's just like I'm sure Britain was about hating Germans and French. One way of dealing with complex situations is to blame the other. And it's, it's very widespread in, uh, in Congo, loving to hate Rwanda and people of Tutsi origin. And there are a lot of people, because the Rwandan borders back in history before the Europeans did go partly into the Eastern Congo, so there are Congolese people of Tutsi origin. And that's part of the problem. And that's why, I just my final point, the alliance between Kagame and Kabila, bringing the two together, you've got to do that to get some order in the Eastern Congo, even though it's annoying a lot of people in Congo. But it is hope for the future. Uh, let, let me deal quickly with two of uh, points that have been raised. Well, I agree with Claire on the issue of NGOs and, and civil society. Um, the and some of them are there on the ground, and they are doing wonderful work. That I will say. They are there on the ground, they are doing wonderful work, and they should be encouraged to continue to do wonderful work. No women on our team, we have. We have um, Ambassador Mulamula. Ambassador Mulamula is the head of uh, Great Lakes, uh, International Great Lakes, uh, uh, no. Uh, International Conference on Great Lakes, which is based in uh, Zimbura, in um, um, Burundi, and is on our team. Um, but what do we do with the women? Anywhere we go, we, are, we need the women group. In uh, um, Goma, uh, on three occasions, I have met the women group listen to them. I have taken uh, uh, memoranda from them. And of course, they are there on the ground and they know where the shoe pinches and we really reckon with them. Um, my dear brother, I appreciate your disappointment with the panel. But I want to appeal to you not to be so disappointed. From what you have heard from this panel, we mean well for Congo. We mean well for that region uh, in totality. But let me come to the point you raised. There is apprehension, and there is no doubt about that, about the Rwandan army coming to there's apprehension. And let me say this. I dug my heart for President Kabila because he took a great political risk in allowing that to happen. And without allowing that to happen, we will not be able to get to where we are today. And where we are today is this. President Kagame, and it doesn't matter what you may think or say, he needs to be reckoned with in finding solutions to the question of security, peace, and cooperation in the Great Lakes region. Just as the president of Burundi has a role to play, president of Uganda has a role to play. Now, President Kagame said he has not seen a closer time or a, a, a closer 
solution to issue of peace in the, in the Congo or in the Great Lakes region other than now. And if he says that, he knows what to say. And my own point is that we should help the rapprochement that has developed. We should help to strengthen it and make it work. Let me tell you, and you can help here, most Congolese in Eastern Democratic, uh, Eastern DRC don't believe that they are Congolese citizens. I don't know whether you are one of those who don't believe that. They believe that any citizen in the Congo is from Rwanda. Now, okay, I'm happy that you are not one of those. But there are Congolese Tutsis. There are Congolese Hutus. And we have to accept that. Of course, because of the issue of Keith and King, yes, sorry. They, <laughs> they, they, have, they have more affinity with their brothers and sisters across the, uh, which is understandable. You find some of them in the army. Their brother, a brother is in the army in Rwanda. Uh, another brother is in the army in the Congo. But we have that. Even in West Africa. You will have somebody from Niger Republic is in the in Nigerian army. And a brother is in the Nigerian army. Or in uh, um, uh, um, uh, Ghana. And what is the other? Okay. Now, so we should just accept this and make it work. And as I said, if we make it to work, we will all be laughing and we will all be happy at the end of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming this evening, for being an excellent audience. And thank you to our speakers. Can I ask you to remain seated while our speakers leave for security reasons? Um, and they won't be long. Uh, and uh, thank you once again.